Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. And we're back. We've been doing this for a year, and it's me, Alex West, with Andrea Helbat, Sue Bissati. That was a new way to say it. And yeah, so it's been a year. We're both looking much older. Andrea looks terrible. And I've had to invest in fancy eye cream. So that's new. But it's been a really interesting ride and a great ride doing this podcast. And one of the best things we've, I think both of us have gotten out of this is really the feedback and the comments and emails and messages and Facebook posts that we've gotten from all of you guys. And we really came to the realization that we probably have the smartest listeners out there and a lot of people who are willing to engage and give ideas and share experiences. And between Andrea and myself, we would always enjoy reading these, sharing them amongst ourselves, chatting about them. And we thought, you know what? This kind of deserves its own episode. It's true. When you make a podcast, when you set it up, you record, you edit it, and you put it out there into the world, you know, we're able to look at how many listens it has, how many people are tweeting about us and stuff. But for the most part, it feels like you're just dropping it into a black hole, like the black faceless void of the internet. So when you guys reach out and talk to us, it really gives us an idea that there are really people listening and engaging with us. And it's very rewarding. And it's why we're still doing it. So thank you so much. And this episode is for you. And in doing this podcast, we talk about so much theory, so many anecdotes, so much history that I think it's important to go back and revisit some of these episodes because, you know, our opinions have changed. We've got new information. We've had feedback from a lot of different people. And so it's always important to kind of continue the conversation, even though the episode is, you know, live and you guys can keep listening to it. It doesn't mean the conversation has ended. And I think what we've gotten a lot of feedback on from all of our listeners is that it's starting to make them think about horror in a different way, which is so amazing and you know the fact that you guys are thinking about it it makes us think about it more and the ideas become a bit clearer rethink some stuff so that's what we're gonna do and uh, we hope you guys are on board for this what's gonna happen is we're gonna go through some emails and some stuff that we've seen on facebook and on podomatic We're not going to have time to get through every single one, but I assure you that every single message that we get is read and considered and replied to. But we're going to bring up a couple of key ones today that we wanted to talk about. And as a special treat, I'm going to drop in some bloopers. I've actually kept a blooper reel for the past year. Uh, I kept it in a file on Audacity called The Cutting Room Floor, is what I called it. And whenever something hilarious happened on the podcast, I would edit it out, but I would also cut and paste it and keep it in the cutting room floor. So I've gone through them all and kept some of the funny stuff. So here and there, you're going to hear some of that. And we hope you find those as hilarious as we do. So we're going to take you back to a time now. It's the uh, winter, early winter of 2012. A young sociologist and a young performance theory film studies gal get together 
have some wine and start talking about some horror movies. So that takes us back to our first episode, which was a compare contrast of Bob Clark's Black Christmas and John Carpenter's Halloween. Now, I think what's safe to say is the most feedback we got was probably for this episode. And that really has to come down to the fact that neither Andrea nor I were particularly huge fans of Halloween, uh, especially in contrast to Black Christmas. Again, what we try to do in this podcast is we try to take the critique element out of it and really examine the films and theories and themes that they present to us. But you kind of can't get away from a little bit of critique. So hopefully you guys are okay with that. And we did mention several times that we actually preferred Black Christmas overall, especially in terms of character development, plot, because it has such a rich plot, especially in comparison to Halloween, that it was really hard for us to overlook. And I feel like we both just got so much more out of Black Christmas just in terms of ideas, talking points. And also it was the first time Andrea had seen Black Christmas. So, you know, that initial excitement, you know, you can't undo that. The bulk of the email that we got about this episode were, I'd say, divided between people saying, holy shit, thank you for talking about Black Christmas in all its glory. I've always loved that film. I always thought it was very progressive in this and this and that. It was great to hear some girls actually talk about it. But the other thing that we would hear quite a bit is people being kind of defensive about Halloween and thought that we weren't really giving it a fair shake. So the first email that we wanted to talk about came to us through Gmail about this episode by a fellow that we interact with on Facebook quite a bit by the name of Facundo Campos. And he writes, great job on the first episode. I look forward to hearing more, but he took issue with the fact that we called Laurie Strode the quintessential good girl. And this kind of harkens back. We're always talking about the the final girl as defined by Carol Clover in Men, Women, and Chainsaws. And we talked about how Laurie compared to her friends, was kind of a nerdy good girl who wanted to stay away from boys and didn't want to do drugs and just wanted to do her homework, whereas her friends, as polar opposites, think that books are largely dumb. And Facundo actually references the point where, while they're in the car, Lori's friend lights up what, it's not explicitly stated, but I agree with Facundo in his point that it was probably a joint, and she takes a hit off of it. So that kind of makes her not good. And he writes to that point, she is in fact not the quintessential good girl. In fact, she smokes at the very beginning. I can't remember if it was weed or not, but I do remember her coughing. Take what you will, she is not perfect, at least not in the virginal sort of way. Now, obviously that's very true. That does happen. And I think what the feedback we've gotten from this episode has been is that she is not as pure and as good as you know we might have initially thought. I think what we were responding more to is the notion of responsibility and maturity. Lori does not shirk her responsibilities in terms of babysitting or doing homework. You know, you can be a quote unquote good girl and still have a drink and still have sex with your boyfriend. And I think that's, you know, what you kind of see in later slasher films and more postmodern slasher films. But certainly in this case, she really adhered to the responsibility and the transition to becoming an adult or, you know, what she hoped to be. That's right. And insofar as we made the point that, you know, Lori and her friends are not maybe the most believable set of girls coming from a couple of girls who were very, very long ago, actually teenage girls. 
I think the fact that Lori kind of indulges in a little bit of talking about her crush and maybe trying that joint, and yes, of course, coughing on it because, you know, she's not used to such hard drugs. Trying dope and choking on it does not a bad girl make Facundo, you know, like, sure, she's not a saint, but you have to admit she is Mother Teresa compared to her friends. And I feel like for the sake of the film, if she didn't engage in any of that, you would just be like, why are they even friends? Yeah, I think it's important to examine characters within the world of the film. So in the world of the film, those three characters, those three women are all friends. So as Andrea said, they do need to have some sort of commonality amongst themselves. But it's also important to examine that Lori does not leave children and go have sex with her boyfriend or try to. And so it's really looking at that in terms of the theory behind it. And again, Carol Clover really puts Lori Strode and Halloween as the kind of perfect typical slasher film and I very much agree with that Uh, I recently rewatched Halloween I guess back in November this year and it's a great film it is a classic there is absolutely nothing wrong with it my personal preference is towards Black Christmas because each time I watch it it creeps me out I get unsettled and it's so much fun and it has all these different tones to it and they all seem to work within the world and I think rewatching. Halloween in November and then of course Christmas just passed so I had to give Black Christmas a watch was that I really felt the scope and the stakes of the world of Black Christmas more and I think that's what endears me more to it but again no other filmmaker could have made what John Carpenter made with Halloween it is a brilliant film it's a great film for someone who's getting into horror to go and find and seek out and watch because it is really creepy and it is really unsettling But you know what? Sometimes you just can't beat Margot Kidder. So yes, maybe we were a little bit too harsh on Lori. Maybe she's not as good as we said. But we did get a message on Facebook from our old friend Heidi Honeycutt, who made it a point to bring up the fact that that one scene in Halloween where PJ Souls talks about how she never brings her books. Who needs books? Books are lame. Is actually excruciating for me. I've always wondered if she ad-libbed that because I can't imagine that having been in the script. So it wasn't just us. That was a bad, bad line. I had that very same thought about that clip, Heidi. It's one of the most wince-worthy things I've heard in horror. And I had some stupid friends in high school, but uh, yeah, wow. And one of the friends, I'm going to call him our friend because let's face it, we probably are, Axel Cohagen. Uh, Now, one of the first interactions we had with him and when we became aware of him was when he very kindly wrote a little blog post about the Faculty of Horror, and that is on his website, axelcohagen.com. And he says some very lovely things about the podcast. Again, thank you so much. And then he talks a little bit about, again, some of these issues we're talking about with these characters. And that he feels like our kind of take on the two sets of female characters from firstly Black Christmas and then Halloween, these characters are really divided by regionality and age. Obviously, the characters in Black Christmas are just those few years older, and they're in university. They're, you know, away from home. You grow up a lot in that time period. And, you know, they're making more choices, and they're dealing with the consequences of those choices. Now, as Axel points out, the small, sleepy town of Haddonfield... There isn't a lot for these young girls to do. They probably don't have a lot going on, but it makes sense for them to care about their boyfriends and making sure that's fun and good and like going to parties and having that be a huge part of their lives. That's right. I think he was he was pretty right to 
point out that maybe there are certain reasons why we resonated better with these Canadian chicks in Black Christmas and not the Haddonfielders from Illinois. The one thing I was thinking about a lot, especially in regards to Axel's point and preparing for this episode, was that we talked about a similar kind of set of characters more recently when we talked about Carrie. Now, those characters I find to be very interesting, and they have a lot of the same kind of limitations of the young girls of Haddonfield. Obviously, they are more morally complex because they are either being tormented or they are the tormentors. And after that first scene of Carrie, they then have to kind of draw lines in the sand and figure out who they are and where they stand. Now, we actually have the same actress in both films, which is PJ Souls, playing, in my opinion, a remarkably similar character. But to be honest, her dialogue's better. It's a lot clearer. I feel like I can't get away from that line of like, I don't like books. Where are books? Blah, blah, blah. I feel like that was something John Carpenter just said is like, no, no, PJ, no, no, we're, we're not going to use this one. Just keep talking. No, yep, just keep talking. It's fine. It's fine. We're just going to zoom out. No, it's all good. We're just testing for audio. Like it just, as Andrea says, it sounds like such a throwaway line, but it defines that character so bluntly in my head that I can't get away from it. And, you know, Andrea and I are academics and we always try to do the best we can and present the clearest picture we can. But sometimes there are things that just get under our skin and won't let go. So I think that might have been one of those things for both of us. So another message that we got actually on Podomatic, which is the host of our podcast, and you may or may not listen to our podcast off Podomatic because we also stream it off my website at ladyhellbat.com. But we got an anonymous message from someone saying, it's obvious these are Canadian girls, eh? <laughs> is, is, is it obvious? I mean, I guess we've admitted to uh, drinking Caesars on the air, eh? We're drinking Caesars right now, aren't we there, bud? Oh, yeah, eh? Hey, good day. Welcome to the Great White North. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? Okay, our topic today is the Great White North because we got like lots of mail, eh? Like, about it, eh? And we also had another comment on that Potomatic episode, again, from another anonymous listener. And they wrote, Halloween starts in 1968? Something like 10 or 15 years later? Pretty loose when it comes to the, quote, academic, unquote, part. No, I've got to address that. I believe I did the synopsis for Halloween in that episode. So that kind of, that's my bad. And what happened, I remember thinking when we were recording that first episode is I got so into researching theory and trying to be fun and interesting that it kind of hadn't really occurred to me that we had to do synopses for these films. And I feel like each episode we do, it's the part Andrea and I just kind of like grit our teeth and try to get through as quickly as possible. It's frankly, it's the least fun part to really talk about because we really just want to get into the meat and potatoes of these conversations. So we try to be really accurate and as concise as possible. Obviously, synopses are incredibly important, whether you're writing an academic paper, a blog post, a feature article in a magazine, you need to give context for these films. So if someone wants to listen to an episode of ours, we need to give them the basis to understand this film. So this is my kind of wraparound defensive defense. I do apologize for that, and I should have done a better job. And, and I feel like, if anything, you know, I kind of heard that episode back, and I kind of went, oh, shit, to myself. 
And I can say from there on, you know, we still make mistakes. There are still accuracy errors in the podcast occasionally. And we listen to that and we mark it and we try to correct them. We just try to be as accurate as we can and make sure they don't happen. But what can we say? We, we just get so excited. And we're drinking. Yeah, so just now, Andrea spent like half an hour trying to set up audio because we had a little bit of a problem, but Andrea fixed it because she's a pro. And while she was doing that, I drank most of my drink, so I'm a little ahead of you, buddy. You always are. (laughs) So, I mean, that little remark, that little anonymous mark was probably the closest thing we've come to negative feedback, but we do welcome errata, if you want to call it as such. Uh, Mike Tank on Facebook is also famous for pointing out factual flubs. So a shout out to him and also, who else? Robert Black caught us one recently. So thank you, whistleblowers. We love you most of all. Now, another comment I want to make mention of was by our old friend Stuart Feedback Andrews of the Roomorg podcast, giving us feedback on our first inaugural episode. And he said, well done on the first show. It was refreshing to hear these films discussed from a purely female perspective, specifically in terms of what degree one can actually identify with the girls in the films, as opposed to just purely lusting after them all. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And we've actually been hearing this from quite a few listeners, that the female perspective is refreshing, which is really great to hear, especially since there's so much negativity around this whole women in horror movement that started up a couple of years ago. It's gotten way out of control. Female horror critics often talk about gender and then get criticized for bringing gender politics into horror movies, which is ridiculous. You you have to accept the fact that in a patriarchal society, Gender politics are all around us, and talking about them doesn't make them any less real. That being said, we do make every effort to not focus solely on gender politics, but we're certainly not going to ignore them. And we really appreciate the fact that the feminine perspective is being embraced so warmly on our podcast. And finally, the last one I want to bring up for this episode was by Jennifer Linton, who wrote on Podomatic. She wrote a brief review of Black Christmas on her own blog. And then she said that she's looking forward to the return of the Black Museum Lecture Series. And the only thing I love more than a Faculty of Horror fan is a Faculty of Horror and Black Museum fan. Can I just say, every time you bring up Black Museum on this podcast, I feel like you're cheating on me. Yes, I have two children, one with you and one with Paul. I don't love one any better than the other. I thought you were going to say, like, me and Paul are your children. No, you guys are my baby mamas. Anyway, thank you so much, Jennifer, for your support. We hope you keep listening. And if you want to check out Jennifer's blog with a lot more great articles on horror, check it out at jenniferlinton.com. So our next episode, episode two, was our Valentine's Day episode in February of 2013, and that's where we tackled fatal attraction and fear. Now, we actually didn't receive a lot of feedback for this one, and I'm a little sad because that's kind of my... Uh, you know what? Each of these episodes is my favorite in some way or another, but I really, I really liked this episode in particular. I feel like it was where we kind of hit our stride a bit more and we were just more comfortable. So you really got a sense of what we wanted to do with this podcast. And we did as well, just as we were doing it. It was so much fun to record that it really, I think, is a really good showcase for what we didn't even know we wanted out of this podcast. So the one main piece of feedback we got from this episode was by my friend Izzy Lee, who is a independent female horror director based out of Boston, Massachusetts. And she wrote, 
I think you two will really enjoy this interview. It touches on societal roles in an intelligent academic way, much like your Valentine's podcast. And then she links an article on the Diabolique magazine website. Uh, and it's an interview with Hannah Neurotica, who is the founder of Women in Horror Month. And it's an interview done by a Diabolique writer uh, named Lita Robinson. And it's a really fascinating interview with Hannah and we will repost this to Facebook and Twitter so you guys can take a look at it for yourselves. That's right. I also really enjoyed that that link. So thank you for posting that, Izzy. I thought Hannah made some really interesting points in that article, particularly about cultural imperialism and hostile, which uh, had never really occurred to me before. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that it, it gets kind of tiresome and burdensome to keep defending the existence of gender politics in horror film. But but Hannah, who is also the founder of Women in Horror Month, does it tirelessly. So you've got to give her props for that. There's something really interesting in the interview, just as Andrea said. The whole thing is really fascinating, but there was one term that Lita, the writer, used in a question she asked Hannah, and that was the term the dark continent in referring to the female body and mind, which was a term that Freud used quite frequently in his writings. And I thought that was really interesting, just especially connecting it to these two films of Fatal Attraction and Fear, because, you know, you have, especially in Fatal Attraction, this unknown damaged female body and mind who is unable to cope. And through the events of the film, you know, that's just more firmly established that because she is unknown and unwilling to change or submit in any way that a man basically understands her, her needs and desires are never really taken seriously and really, really ostracized, especially in a societal way, because the female character in that film, Beth, who is Michael Douglas's wife in that film, she is, you know, accepted, lauded, and that is who the female audience who, you know, goes to see that film and watches that film is really meant to identify with. She's the correct way of being a woman. So I thought that was a really interesting just turn of phrase. I feel like I read that probably in my master's degree, but when it comes back, it always strikes a really interesting chord with me. That just goes to speak to the, frankly, institutionalized patriarchy that we live with. And when you look at a movie like Fear, you have the Reese Witherspoon character kind of tiptoe towards, you know, really embracing that quote-unquote dark continent within herself. And then through the actions and the plot of the film, she rejects all of that in favor of subscribing to the patriarchal ideas that her father lays down because that's what keeps her safe and that's what she knows and that's correct. So another thing I'd like to mention with reference to this episode is that it was our second episode and it was a bit of a reach in terms of we decided to do compare and contrast again, but we decided to kind of reach out of horror proper into these kind of thrillers. And one of them is a pretty teeny bopper thriller and the other was kind of a Hollywood blockbuster thriller. And one of our writers who we're going to talk about a little bit later, uh, someone by the name of Monica Krawcheck, made a point to say, episode two's look at into some more loosely associated thrillers irked me at first, but it was such a great look at these movies. I wouldn't mind seeing more of that either. We made an effort to paint with very broad strokes and reach outside of horror proper and just try not to get typecast as a super feminist, super horror podcast. You know, we want to be accessible. We want to talk about everything that we find remotely interesting or scary in the loosest possible terms. So we're glad that that went over well. 
Which brings us to our third episode, Jennifer's Body. Our first comment about this episode is from our good friend, Owen Garth. He writes, you bring up some interesting points. I appreciate your choice of topic, but I cannot force myself to watch any movie where the setting is a high school. My gripe doesn't relate to your discussion, but I thought I'd share that even after your intellectually stimulating discourse, I still won't watch this movie. You know what we want to say? You will watch any goddamn movie we tell you to. Come on, Owen. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Do it. What are you making Alex sad? Look at her. She's so sad. That's her sad sounds. I think this episode was what really brought a lot of people into the podcast because we tackled one film. We made that decision since we'd done two compare contrast we decided to just really focus on one and see what we could really unpack out of it and it was really just a fleeting suggestion to Andrea because I'd seen Jennifer's body I guess a year before or so that we should try it and that we should do this one and the responses we got to this were really heartwarming because they ranged from people saying I've always liked this movie and I've always really felt that it kind of did not get a fair shake in a lot of senses which is great because I think we both felt like that to a lot of people going back and either reconsidering the film or actually going back and watching it for the first time which is really incredible because I can see how people don't like this film it's a bit twee, it's a bit too, you know, tongue-in-cheek in some ways, but I think it's worth a watch, and I think it's really trying to do something with the horror genre and the teen film, and I think it's a really interesting touchstone of 2009 and where we were in popular culture. That's right. I think Jennifer's Body really deserved its own episode, and I think we'll definitely do it again next time we come across such a pleasant surprise of a smart and critical film. And we recently got some interesting feedback by a fella named Tony Whitaker. And he says, your take on Jennifer's body changed the way I look at women in horror movies. I started thinking about women who refused to be the victim in a horror film and protected not just herself, but those around her, which is absolutely true. And we really believe that, Tony. One of the things, you know, we talk about in feminist horror films and particularly in Jennifer's Body is that when you really take a feminist viewpoint and a feminist angle the whole world opens up and I think Jennifer's Body is a really great example of that because you know as we talked about in that episode when Jennifer kills a young man you often get to know that character a bit more you know you see his parents mourning him you see his funeral the impact of death in that film is quite huge and it's really impressive another film that we talked about not on this podcast but on the room morgue podcast was american mary by the Saska twins and that in my mind equally has just a feminist point of view as jennifer's body and a really similar tone as well and in that film the male characters in particular the uh, strip club owner and even, you know, the evil doctor, you have a larger sense of the character. They are not just victims. They are not just, you know, love interest material. But you feel like they had a life before 
this movie and in some cases for those who survive you feel like they have a life after and you know actually and it was the same thing in ginger snaps i think we hit on that topic as well and that's one of the really great things about feminism and what i think kind of gets glossed over especially when you just use the term feminism because it sounds like we're just out for women but really it's just about creating more full and alive characters that's right so basically to sum up our, our feedback from that episode Come on, Owen. Watch the movie. Please watch it. Thank you. Uh, I don't like Julia Roberts. That's someone I don't like. Her and her big horse mouth and her awful laugh. I just want to punch her while she eats pasta and finds herself. So Mary, cross the Mersey. Very. <laughs> Mary, cross the Mersey. <laughs> Insert clip of Spike and David Boring Anus talking. I won't insert that clip. I'll leave just you saying that. (laughs) Sounding like a Ah, foo. What am I talking about? I don't know where I'm going with this. And then once they have defended themselves and beat off the monster, at least for the time being, they... Can I just point out that you said that the final girl beats off the monster? (laughs) I always want to talk about jizz. A cluck? (laughs) The fuck is a cluck? (laughs) I think my Ikea nightstand is a cluck. <laughs> well, you know what? After a year, we can still make each other laugh. Now, our fourth episode, Do You Like Scary Movies? Again, this one was kind of an experiment for us because we got a little personal and we got a little anecdotal. And I think we talked about ourselves a lot in this episode. And judging by the feedback, it went over pretty well. I think you guys like that we can situate ourselves in our analysis and I think that's really important in film criticism and coming from a background in sociology there's a whole branch called standpoint theory you know a lot of academia wants you to take the possessive pronoun out of your writing and write as impartially as you can but in sociology you have to kind of consider that this is coming from the viewpoint of you know a a white female or what have you so I think it's really important to situate ourselves in our work, and we accomplished that with this episode, and it was kind of a lot of fun. Yeah, one of the things I've really enjoyed as I kind of grown my academic career has been that the writer putting themselves into the work, and one of my favorite examples of that was actually something Andrea made me aware to in her book, When There's No More Room in Hell, when she talks about the theorist Wade Davis, who wrote the book The Serpent and the Rainbow, which was then turned into a... Not so great film, but um, maybe, Andrea, you want to talk a little bit about his experience, because I always found that really interesting, that it really was his story and his take on the events that happened, and it really felt like a viewpoint that we were getting exposed to. Well, within sociology, they call it the empirical evidence that we gather is participant observation, and the idea is that we can't really understand um, why people do a certain thing without doing it ourselves and giving it a role. So Wade Davis went to Haiti himself to check out what was going on with the zombification. And I mean, the movie definitely deviates from the book in in terms of they kind of make him the victim. He becomes, you know, the target of these witch doctors and the zombification process and gets buried alive and all this shit. But, But basically, yeah, that really kind of embodies the participant observation aspect of gathering empirical research in a sociological sense. Now, 
what we asked a lot of you to do in uh, that episode was to write us back with your scariest movies. And we got a couple, again, Owen Garth uh, wrote in to talk about Wreck, which, Andrea, have you seen Wreck yet? No. Owen, if you watch Jennifer's Body, I'll watch Wreck. You should just watch Wreck. It's fucking great. Is it a deal, Owen? I'm in if you are. <laughs> but absolutely. Uh, Wreck, I talked about it in my research on found footage, and Wreck is fabulous movie it's really interestingly thematically story-wise hopefully we'll get to it on this podcast because i would love to talk more about it but also it's just fucking chilling and great performances a really great use of creating a world through the found footage format and i think it really kind of rises head and shoulders above a lot of the imitators now, another friend to the podcast, Patrick Dolan, wrote in and talked about the episode, and he agreed with me about Zelda in Pet Cemetery. And so thank you, because she is still terrifying to me. I still occasionally will have a pretty heinous nightmare involving her. He also mentions another film called The Willies, which is a horror anthology and as he writes, it was marketed to kids, starred Sean Astin. In one story, a monster came out of the ceiling in a school bathroom to kill kids. This made me afraid to take a number two at school for my entire elementary school stay. The worst one, however, was the last story about some kid who made dioramas with dead flies. In the segment, he gets some super grow formula for plants, gives it to the flies who, spoiler alert, grow to human size, revive, and tear his limbs off. This terrified me so deeply that I developed apotemnophobia, a fear of amputees that prevented my young self from even going outside without a lot of coaxing from my parents. I got over it with some therapy. Now, that's really intense. And I think, again, that goes to, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of us who love horror movies remain fascinated by them because they can affect us so deeply, especially if we see the right thing at the right age. It'll stay with us till, you know, we're probably on our deathbeds. Now, Patrick's writing about the willies actually reminded me of Another one of my scariest movies, which I'm now over. I'm totally over it. But it was Ernest Scared Stupid. It's actually kind of a fucked up movie. I haven't watched it in a really long time because I'm still like a little bit scared to go back and watch it. But I remember there was a scene where um, there was like a gang of kids and Ernest. And the girl in the, the group, she thought one of the demon troll things was under her bed. So she had this big buildup and like looked under her bed. And nothing was there. And she sits up, has this huge sigh of relief then turns around and the troll is right there and gets her. And for years, well, maybe not years, but like a year or two, I feel like my bed was pushed against a corner. So I slept like tucked into the corner because I was too scared that a troll would be somewhere. And I figured that was the safest place <laughs> for me to be. And let me tell you, as a 16 year old, did not make me popular. I don't know if I mentioned this in the actual episode in question, but uh, when I was a kid, I used to go to my friend's house and we would watch Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Anyway, we loved that movie and kids love Pee-wee for obvious reasons. He's like a boy-child man thing. And he was like perpetually young and playful and so incredibly silly. And the movie was really fun, but there were two scenes in it 
that would scare the shit out of us. And we had hiding spaces in her living room and she had hers and I had mine and we knew when to get into them. And I'm not even going to tell you what they are because I, I, I just know that people are going to write in and they're going to know exactly what two scenes they are. Cause there's two scenes in that movie that are fucking terrifying. So yes, we can all relate Patrick, maybe not to your apotemnophobia. Apotenophobia? I don't... It's a new word. I like it. It's a very politically incorrect phobia to have. Uh, That must have been really awkward around Veterans Day, so I feel for you on that. And another thing I didn't mention in the podcast, but Stephen King's It also made a lasting impression on me in the bathroom department, as well as what Patrick is talking about with the willies, because I was really apprehensive around toilets and shower drains for a while because this monster lived in the sewer and there are actually lots of horror movies that depict death and or violence or dismemberment in a bathroom setting which is kind of interesting and maybe even worth looking into on a podcast I don't know if it's because it's a very private intimate moment or if it's a moment where you're alone and you feel kind of vulnerable because you're doing private business but but yeah, I, it, it, it occurred to me after I read your message, Patrick. Yeah, I think that would actually make kind of for an interesting podcast. We really have to go into like waspy European fears of death and defecation and the Black Plague probably out of that. So another email we got, we received from a lady called Len. And I know I'm not supposed to have a favorite listener, but not only is Len a fellow sociologist, her email footer says that she's a professional boxing trainer. Could she be any cooler? Well, yes, she can. She actually also writes reviews for spaghetti western films at fistfulofpasta.com. So check that out. I wanted to address a comment she made. She said, not sure whether you have the same problem as me, but has watching so many horror films desensitized you? I still love and enjoy horror films, but nothing really scares me anymore. I wanted to address this comment about being desensitized from watching so much horror because it's a question that was also asked of me recently by a journalist interviewing me on horror for Chill Magazine which I don't know if they have it in the States, but it's a free magazine they put out at the beer store here in Canada. So it's one that I find myself reading when I'm waiting in line. It's like the Vanity Fair of Canada. It's kind of a huge piece of crap. And I didn't super want to do it, but I did it. And my response to this journalist was, no, I don't think watching a lot of horror makes you desensitized. I think it makes you more critical as a viewer and therefore more difficult to impress with mediocrity. Now, I know this comes off as really arrogant and cliquey, but when I'm talking horror with someone, it's important to know if they're a horror fan or not, because people who are well-versed in the genre have a different perspective than the casual viewer, whose opinion is just as valid, but you do need to know if you're drinking the same flavor Kool-Aid. Now, I don't think my disdain of modern horror is the result of desensitization. And if anything, I feel like my appreciation of classic horror has made me hypersensitive to ham-fisted piece-of-shit cinema that makes up the bulk of the genre output these days. And like, maybe I'm a snob and, hey, like, enjoy watching what you enjoy watching. But I feel like the reason I rarely get scared anymore is because I'm more sensitive to bad stories, crappy acting, and sloppy CGI. 
Yeah, I agree. I'm still a huge scaredy cat. And jump scares have always gotten me. They always literally make me jump. Andrea's seen a few movies with me now and I still will tense and like hide my eyes. And I obviously try to do it discreetly. And I brace myself for impact, essentially. Now, a lot of the films that really scare me don't have a ton of jump scares in them because while I react to a jump scare I'll forget about them you know 10 seconds later it's fun to have that reaction and you know that is part of horror and that's part of going to the movies but that does not a great horror film make interestingly about a year ago on Andrea's recommendation I checked out The Haunting of Julia also known as Full Circle and Andrea had been talking about it I believe you wrote about it for Rue Morgue's 200 films you must see and she kind of told me like the skeletal structure of it. And I was like, oh, wow, I really checked that out. And I started watching it one night and I was like, I'll start it. I'll probably fall asleep and I'll finish it in the morning. I wound up staying up much later than anticipated watching this movie, being absolutely terrified by myself and so enraptured by this movie just because of the ideas and the way the story was told and the twists and the turns and the eerie quality of the whole film. You know, I think we all have those things that can almost by default really freak us out. Mine is probably ghosts, you know, so the way the story progressed and we became more aware of the ghosts and their story, that really freaked me out. And that was obviously at the time I was terrified, but it was a really fun watch. And that was a great way to kind of re-engage with that sensation of watching horror, which I think you need to do, especially as a journalist or a podcaster, someone who talks about a subject a lot. You need to re-engage with it as a fan to keep that passion going because if you're austere and stay away from it in that regard you lose that passion and that sense of fun that it comes about from talking about it episode five buffy the vampire slayer Yay. this was a very <laughs> special episode for us because we got to go into the rue morgue manor and spend several hours with Stuart feedback andrews talking about buffy which as you might recall is near and dear to my heart and not so much the case with my co-host. So the first message I want to address is from Jason Brashear, who contacted us over Facebook to say that he has slowly been making progress watching an episode every few days. And at the time that he wrote to us, he was on season two, episode eight, and he had some comments. And I think it's fantastic that once again, uh, we've inspired interest in something that might have been overlooked, especially by, I don't know, like a dude. It was almost overlooked by me, to reiterate. And Stuart recommended that I go back and comb through it, and I will never repay that debt. Uh, it's actually been interesting because in the last couple weeks, my roommate has started re-watching Buffy, uh, ostensibly from the beginning, I think. So now occasionally when I come home in the living room or I'll hear from his room, Sarah Michelle Gellar whining about something and, and we've talked about it he knows I'm not a huge fan initially he was like why why and I was just like it's not the stories it's not the themes all of those things I think are really interesting it's just the incessant whining of the characters it's just like nothing's ever good enough everything's the worst I don't get to live my life I feel so lost and it's like you know what you're saving the goddamn world calm down that's again that is just me it is a really solid show uh, and I'm really happy we got to talk about it it's just it's not for me and recently I've been watching Fringe 
which I really enjoyed. It's a bit more sci-fi than horror, I would say, but it has that same kind of X-Files tinge to it. And I loved the female protagonist, uh, Olivia, in that because she felt so confident, so assured, and it really drove the plot forward to not have a protagonist who was constantly just like stomping their feet every episode. I feel like that show, because of that, was able to go further because it had characters who accepted where they were, made decisions, and just tried to live their life through these events. Just say I'm right. You're not. No. So moving along... We also got a message from a Joshua Thays on Facebook who who wrote, I thought it was hilarious, he wrote, resistance to the Buffy versus futile. And I really couldn't agree more, Joshua. And, uh, and he, he said that feedback added a nice acidic foil, which I think was the most uh, interesting and gentle description of Stuart's uh, bedside manner, I'd say. And, you know, so obviously Andrea and I butted heads a fair bit during the, like, what, two-hour Buffy episode? It was so long. The episode was two hours, but I'm pretty sure we talked for four or five. Yeah, that's probably right. No, it's like if you haven't been able to make the commitment to that episode, it is like the gone with the wind of podcasts. (laughs) And obviously it, it was a topic because we talked about so many episodes that deserved that amount of time. So there is a ton of content. So if you haven't finished listening to it, I encourage you to keep going with it. But Andrea and I butted heads again a fair bit. So um, I took episode six to show her a super fun videotape. And this is, I guess, where we really introduced the West Subasati theater troupe. We had a lot of fun doing that episode because we did try to have a little skit and have things go through it. And uh, that was actually really fun to do. And we will just kind of try to keep doing that because I like Andrea acting. It's like Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep drunk. (laughs) Actually, for all we know, she's always... Yeah, yeah, anyway. So for this episode, uh, we heard again from our friend Len. And she wrote in about all of the, you know, different Japanese films we'd mentioned. And at one point, we really will have to go back and watch all of those because they sound absolutely bonkers and kind of, you know, you need to see to believe. But she writes... I agree that The American Ring was a much more polished movie with more likable characters. However, I think Ringu was scarier. Too bad there isn't a North American Blu-ray release. I think we can all agree that the sequels to both the American and Japanese versions of The Ring were true and utter crap. I think Ringu was a little worse. Now, oh god, those sequels. They... I haven't seen the recent Japanese sequel, which I think is just called Sadako. And I believe it's a 3D one where she like literally crawls toward you through the, I don't know. But I haven't seen all of them, but they, oh, they are, they are a slog. Apparently it was so bad, especially I know on the American one, Ring 2, they did absolutely no press for it. There was no red carpet. Naomi Watts did no press for it and they just kind of released it. And, you know, it's a testament to the success of the original because it made back its money and, you know, kind of quietly slinked away. But I think it's really interesting, that discussion of, you know, what is scarier and what is not scarier. And uh, this is something we come up with time and again. And what scares me may not necessarily scare you and vice versa, nor shouldn't. And I think that's part of what makes these discussions so interesting. And I think it's a really great way to talk about 
theory and themes in films because fear and being terrified is such a primal feeling that to actually break it down and start examining what scares you personally is almost like psychoanalyzing yourself. I think Alex and I have reached an unspoken agreement not to do Asian horror again until we hire a resident linguistics expert to master the ability to say those words properly. Like, you can't hear it in the episode because I am an editing wizard at this point, but it would take Alex and I five times to say Ryuji. Ryuji. Ryuji? No, I I still don't even think that's right. I, I, I don't even know that we succeeded in the end, but... But I hope you enjoyed that episode and our feeble attempts at Japanese. Today we're going to be talking about Hideo Nakata, Reiko Asaka, uh, Asakawa, oh my god, shit. And another interesting dynamic between Reiko and Ruiji, uh, wow, between Reiko and Ruji. Anyway, for me, like, Zelda is a, is a wonderful example of the simulacrum we were talking about. Did I just pronounce that right? Horror. All right, episode seven, Silence of the Lambs, or my delightful pun, Chianti, you hear the lambs? Every time I say that, Andrea just shakes her head. I don't know how I gave Alex the power of naming the episodes. I mean, sometimes I straight up veto and sometimes I just, she sends me what she thinks it should be called and I just put something else without even checking with her. But for this one, as as much as I shook my head, I uh, I couldn't come up with anything better. So, uh, so we let it go. Well, you know, our friendship is basically a scoring system. So Alex won. We were really excited about this episode. It was such a great way to revisit this film and just a great excuse to watch it a bunch because it really is almost a flawless movie. I I can't think of anything I don't like about it. And in that, you really can't see the mechanics behind it, which I think is maybe why it gets overlooked so much, because it's just so watchable and it's so enjoyable and it's so immersive that you tend not to think about all the stuff behind it. So when we initially started off to do this episode, it was a, okay, yeah, we'll we'll do it because Hannibal had just come on TV and had gotten a bit of buzz. And then we both, I think, really got into it and had a lot of fun talking about it. Now, feedback-wise, we got an email from our friend Owen. And Owen, if, if you're not familiar with the Room Org podcast, Owen is also an active listener to that podcast. And Feedback and Lance tend to take the piss out of him a little bit. They pick on him, and he writes in with fucked-up shit sometimes. What he wrote us about this episode is he wrote, It's funny that Feedback has associated the character James Gum with me due to my various disturbed S&M letters to the Rue Morgue podcast and posts on the mortuary. But James is a much more complex character than my meager attempts at humor will ever achieve. Still, it's fun to torment Lance whenever possible. Now... I'll admit, I've heard some of these S&M stories on the podcast, and whoa. But at the same time, I've gotten to know Lance a bit this past year, and I actually find it hard to believe that it's possible to really fuck with somebody so fundamentally fucked up. He's, I think, one of the most unflappable people I've ever met. Unflappable is actually the perfect word for him, so they just don't appreciate you like we do, Owen. You're our child now, Owen. And another thing in the email earlier on that he writes is, I mean, I think it's just kind of fun to touch on. I believe that no one will attempt another adaptation of the book as they did with Red Dragon. 
So obviously, before Silence of the Lambs, you had Michael Mann's Manhunter. Then they had Silence of the Lambs, complete kind of re-envisioning. They had Brian Cox play Hannibal. It was now Anthony Hopkins, who now just owns the role. They then made Hannibal, which was the sequel, and then went back and did the prequel, uh, Red Dragon, with, again, Anthony Hopkins and Edward Norton. And it's an interesting thought to think of, you know, someone attempting to remake Silence of the Lambs. You know, I do agree with you, Owen. I think it is pretty untouchable. And again, as we were just saying, very perfect in a lot of ways. Um, But, you know, frankly, if they announced tomorrow they were doing a remake of it, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, especially after we sat through that shit that was Carrie remake, you know, nothing would shock me anymore in that regard. Oh, that's right. These days, nothing is sacred. Nightmare on Elm Street. We could we could go on and on. We could do a whole episode on remakes that never should have happened. But but hopefully they'll leave this one alone. Can I just say, okay, so I saw the Nightmare on Elm Street remake in theaters. Was actually kind of excited because I really like Jackie Earl Healy. And it was, again, if you've seen it, it's such a goddamn piece of shit. And then a couple years passed and I tried to rewatch it. And I was going to try to like and write a blog post or something about remakes or some kind of thematic comparison before we had the podcast. I was going to do it. And I could not get through 10 minutes of it. I, I just physically couldn't do it. I just got like so angry. Oh, fuck that movie. And then next we had our episode on urban legends. So in that episode, we talked about Candyman and the aptly titled Urban Legend. Now... What I really thought was interesting about this comment we're going to talk about in a second was we really just tried to kind of focus on the theories and themes behind urban legends and really explore it from that avenue and not necessarily get into feminist ins and outs of it. But I kind of like it when our listeners just bring up some feminist stuff. I think that's, you know, for me, it's it's a really interesting sign. So another listener of ours who we regularly interact with, especially on Facebook, a fella named Brian Von Soffel, writes in, I'm listening to your episode about urban legends, and it reminded me of a problem I had with the movie itself. It feels like the roommate character was being punished with death because she dared to enjoy what was considered, quote unquote, different then, and enjoyed premarital sex with anonymous partners. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar or don't remember the character that Brian is referring to, this is the final girl's dorm roommate. And she is this, you know, uber goth who uses like AOL chat rooms to find guys to hook up with and fuck in their dorm room while the final girl is there. And and it's all very awkward and weird and like the saddest sitcom you've ever seen. I always thought it was really interesting because The Craft had come out just two years earlier and that kind of really introduced me to the, you know, tween-friendly version of goth and, you know, what that all was with Fruza Balk. And really coming back to this movie, it is weird that they just picked, you know, the weird, different girl who might have listened to Marilyn Manson to be the fucked up one who does prescription drugs and dies a horrible death because she you know invites random guys up into her room the roommate character was very much constructed as a very dispensable human being. And I think Brian was very right in in pointing out that she dared to be different. She enjoyed premarital sex, but goth culture is something that really interests me as a sociologist. And it's something that kind of persists in a way to be different and dark. And yet the subculture is so huge that it's become a social movement in itself that it's not so much 
different as alternative to the mainstream. And I think even today, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about goth that they uh, are necessarily depressed or that they hate themselves, that they're prone to violence, that listening to Marilyn Manson makes you shoot up schools and all that shit. And that stuff was kind of coming to a head around when Urban Legends came out. And so it was very manifested in the role of the roommate. And I almost wish we talked about her a little bit more gave her a bit more life in our podcast than she had in that film. Yeah, I think just as Andrea mentioned, we were coming up to the epicenter of the conservative culture, particularly in America, really singling out Marilyn Manson and pointing fingers at him. And then when the tragedy at Columbine happened, which we've also talked about on this podcast, a lot of people, again, just kept pointing at Marilyn Manson. And think that one of the best responses to this was by Manson himself. And in the documentary Bowling for Columbine, when Michael Moore is interviewing Marilyn Manson, and all of the interviews with Manson are really interesting, I think very thoughtful. I you know, know that Marilyn Manson has had some problems up and down. But I think in that interview, he's very honest and very open. And I really appreciated that. I think some of the most powerful takes on gun violence in America, Michael Morris says something to the effect of what would you say to the families that have been, you know, had this tragedy happen to them? And Manson says, I wouldn't say anything. I would listen to them. And that it's so simple, so beautiful. And I think it's someone who does something alternative, which no one really has to subscribe to, but he does have an audience who really like his music. And it just shows that just because it's alternative does not mean it's bad. And I think it's notions like that that really, really date movies like Urban Legend. And if you're smart enough, you can look at that trope of the goth girl dying as kind of sad and pathetic and a bit funny because it's so overt you know, the tides are starting to turn and hopefully we just are becoming more accepting. Now, speaking of kids and violence, we are up to episode nine, our episode on children in horror film, where we looked at three films in this episode. We looked at The Omen, The Bad Seed and The Devil's Backbone. So here's our friend Owen Garth again. And once again, Owen is not fond of episodes talking about characters who are under the drinking age but this one he did listen to and he said he enjoyed our episode and an interesting point he makes is that both in the bad seed and the omen the subject in question is not really a child but impersonating one and so he's kind of positing that the evil in these movies is not actually the child but taking the shape of a child so as to appear helpless and innocent which is an interesting perspective i think that's very true in the omen but for the bad seed i might argue that the darkness of the film in that it really was rhoda and in that it was innate and that this would have been an evil baby an evil zygote and an evil elderly woman if she made it that far you know and that she was just evil through and through yeah, I think what some, a film like The Bad Seed has to offer is that sometimes evil is just really inescapable. And if it doesn't exist in you know your worldview, maybe you aren't looking close enough. And holy crap, is that scary. Is Oliver Reed from Liverpool? No. 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 I was going to say something smart. He's really fucking smart, too. Which will be... What? What was my sentence? Hang on. Um, there's, um, no, never mind. Him, 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 him. I feel goofy. Okay. I'm not really. We're going to move on? I have to go number one.
Fuck, I forgot my point again. Fuck. I'm cutting that, stupid. <clears throat> Do you want another beer? <coughs> I just choked up my own spit. <laughs> Up next, we had episode 10, which I feel like that might have been the episode we were most excited and most nervous about because it was talking about Aunt Flo, that fun time of the month that uh, most women get to deal with. Now, I have to say I was really... I don't know if surprised is the right word because, as you can tell, we've had such positive interactions with so many of you guys that positive constructive feedback is you know not unexpected but really a lot of men especially kind of taking this theme on board you know listening to it engaging with it that was really cool to get that feedback and very affirming I will say quickly I was talking to a guy friend of mine who is a fan of our podcast and listens to it and he said I just can't listen to that episode he was like I'll listen to every other episode you do there's just I can't I just can't listen to that but anyway, it was really funny. He just got like kind of uncomfortable and was just like, nope, not that one. It's not the case for Matt Bragano, who contacted us over Facebook to tell us how much he enjoyed it. And, and you know, Matt, I was, I was really nervous about that episode, to be honest. I, I'm the one who edits the podcast. And in doing so, I listen to the episodes. I go through them over and over with a fine-tooth comb before the final thing comes out. And sometimes the repetition has certain effects on me. I mean, first of all, our audio was acting up a bit that day. Nobody wrote in to complain. I was really apprehensive about putting it out at all because I thought it sounded so bad. I was really unhappy with the quality of the audio. And then you combine the subpar sound quality with this scandalous topic. And I thought, fuck, people are going to hate this. But after you and a couple of other listeners said that not only not only did they enjoy it, but that it challenged them was probably the single most rewarding compliment you could have given us. And it, it might now be my favorite episode. And Matt writes in with, I'm a guy in my late 20s. This subject matter isn't exactly the kind of thing I'm used to. You seriously challenged me on a few levels, but it was insightful and outright hilarious at times. And just as Andrea said, the best thing about this podcast is being able to open up some of these discussions. And again, it's all for you guys. And you guys being receptive and open is just the best thing anyone could ever get when you're doing work like this. So again, we thank you for listening, being open, and taking the time to write back and let us know that. That is, again, that's huge for us. And then we got a rather long but very interesting comment from a listener named Henrik in Scandinavia. He left a comment on our Potomatic page, and he talks about his childhood where he grew up with, obviously, his parents and, you know, several sisters. So not that it was openly talked about, but that it was kind of commonplace for him to go buy milk and tampons, and he never really thought two ways about it. But that his wife is from Russia, and she was, quote, brought up in a believing Orthodox family where topics such as sex are simply not discussed. This is in all probability uh, related to the fact that the Russian Orthodox Church only deals with real-life issues when they intersect directly with the congregation's relationship with the church. So obviously religion plays a huge role in this, and 
continues to. I mean, obviously, you know, the pain of childbirth is supposedly the pain of, you know, Eve's original sin being revisited on every woman ever who decides to have a child. That is one hell of a topic to tackle. And and after that, Henrik mentions uh, Lars von Trier's Antichrist, which is a movie I really, really like. And we're talking about a way to integrate it into an upcoming episode. So I do hope we get to talk about it because there is so much. But the film really deals with the male-female relationship and the patriarchal relationship, which von Trier really explores. Now, a lot of people have said that it's a very misogynist movie. I don't believe it is. I think that that film actually exposes patriarchy by showing it. And for me, it's a really interesting, very layered, very vicious, vicious film. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. Now, toward the end of Henrik's message, he writes, I was wondering if I could ask you a couple questions regarding podcasting that arose after hearing that very interesting episode on horror podcasts in the Rue Morgue podcast, to which I have to say, yes, please, please ask me questions about podcasting. I, I'm getting the sense that maybe it's a technical question about podcasting. And by all means, like I said, I do all the editing and it's something that I have no training in. It's something that I've learned as I go along. And I think I'm slowly learning new techniques from what I can see on YouTube tutorials in my spare time. Like that is the extent of my training. So I would certainly love to talk about the technical aspects that I don't get to talk about in the actual podcast. Feel free to hit us up about stuff we said on the Misadventures and Podcasting panel. Now, another comment that we had about the editing that delighted me, we got just recently from somebody by the name of Monica Krawczyk. And she writes, I appreciate so many aspects of your show, a fair discussion between the two of you with very brief sound bites or musical interludes. One can tell that you work really diligently on editing and it's appreciated. I actually have a hilarious anecdote about editing the last episode. It was over the Christmas holidays. Alex and I recorded it, and then the holiday season was as the holiday season is, which is to say fucking crazy. Like, I'm just... I'm shopping, there's parties, I'm drinking constantly. Well, you see, now it sounds like every day, but I, I was really, really busy, and I really wanted to get the episode out before Christmas Day, because I thought that horror podcast listeners will be spending time with their family and maybe not listening to their favorite horror podcasts. I really wanted to get it out before Christmas and I wanted to work on it on the train, but I wasn't able to. So I had just gotten to my parents' house in Ottawa and it was about midnight and I was alone in the house working on it late at night. Now my process... I don't expect that many of our listeners are familiar with the program that we use, the freeware program called Audacity. But what I do is I cut out all the clips from YouTube and I put them in a single file and I put them, this file is just kind of a placeholder to keep them. And then I've got our podcast in a separate window of Audacity that I just kind of drop them in. Now, I use a lot of shortcuts with my left hand, control C for copy and control V for, you know, like shit like that. And I guess I kind of fumbled and I hit a couple of keys the wrong way. And what happened was it played all the clips that I had collected at the same time, really loud in my ears, in the headphones. And this is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode. So I had clips of scary voices saying, what you are about to see is a real, I have the chainsaw. I've got people screaming. I've got maniacal laughter. I've got hillbillies saying stupid fucked up shit. And it scared the living 
shit out of me. I jumped three feet out of my chair. I had a sweat. I might have even screamed out loud, but like, honestly, I can't describe the noise this thing made. If hell has a sound, I heard it that night. And it scared me so bad. I, I really wish I kept the files and I figured out what I did to make them all play again so I could play it for you because it was a truly horrific experience. But I was so terrified that I deleted it right away. So thank you, Monica, for giving me the opportunity to share that anecdote because I thought it was pretty hilarious. So, yeah, that takes us up until about now. We haven't really gotten a lot of feedback on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode. So... We'll, we'll maybe talk about it at another point. But, you know, I do want to say just before we wrap up, one of the other things we do get is a lot of questions about how we pick episodes, how we choose things. A lot of people writing in with some really interesting suggestions. And I will say what we do to pick episodes is we kind of just throw ideas at each other. And then when we both kind of go, oh, yeah, that sounds interesting, then we'll move forward with it. We do intend to keep doing this for the foreseeable future. So we will have a lot of opportunities to tackle a lot of stuff. One thing I've kind of been itching to talk about is um, the alien movies. But uh, the tricky thing is, like, you can talk about really when you do a podcast like this, and when you have someone to creatively bounce ideas off of, and, you know, it's always a process really of just refining and figuring out the most interesting way to tackle something. The tricky thing is, is when you have something as huge and as formidable as the Alien franchise, it's what do you talk about? You know, so it's figuring out the best ways to talk about a subject that you really love in a way that will interest you guys and is in a way that you might not have heard of before or isn't really readily out there. Uh, something I think I might like to talk about in the future, this was actually a suggestion from Len that's been percolating in my head. And then again, it's a very big, broad topic, but it's religion in horror. And that's something that we've touched upon a little bit with the omen. It comes up here and there. I'm sure it's been revealed in several episodes that I am still recovering from a Roman Catholic upbringing. And not so much in the home. I mean, yeah, I was forced to go to church like so many Western families. But high school, I went to Catholic high school in little schoolgirl uniforms and all that. And so I think I've always loved religious horror movies or horror movies that had a religious slant just because it, it had that extra taboo of a topic that was very sacred and holy in my upbringing. So it feels really naughty to talk about. So I think it'd be kind of exciting. But once again, it's a huge, huge topic. I'd have to really narrow it down. The Exorcist, definitely. So yeah, that's something that I'll be mulling over. And then I think the one final thing we should maybe talk about is this idea that we're a feminist podcast. And, you know, we've mentioned it before, I think, on the Rue Morgue podcast when we were guests on there. But we never set out to make a feminist podcast. Um, I'm very proud that we are one and are considered one. But it's not something, you know, we sat around and thought about doing. We just want to talk about horror. And I think the fact that both Andrea and I both readily identify as feminists and are always engaging with the culture and, you know, feminist history, I think that just kind of happens. It's true. And it's something that as a female horror writer, it, it's a label that you kind of want to shy away from because, my God, the negativity and the blind criticism and the outright trolling and online hatred that we've had to endure from waving the feminist flag has been so brutal that initially I think we were a little bit hesitant for the podcast to get branded as a, as a feminist podcast, but I don't know that it has. And 
judging by the feedback that we've gotten that we talked about today, we get a lot of messages from guys saying that the podcast made them think and made them think about women differently. And if it's accessible, then I'm happy with it. You can call it whatever you want. Yeah, it's just a part of who we are. And, you know, it is a part of our culture. And it, especially for the last couple of years, as we mentioned earlier, it's been a really hot button topic in the horror community. So, you know, we, we need to throw our two cents in there because we're women. And we can't stop talking about shopping. So before we go, we want to talk a bit about our contest. We solicited feedback. We asked nicely for it. And then we begged for it. And you gave it to us. And we squeezed we squeezed all the juice out of it to make this wonderful episode. So once again, we'd like to thank everyone who took the time to write in. It means everything to us. It keeps us going. So thank you so much for the feedback. We hope you'll continue to listen and engage us in discussion. And on our way out, we are going to play a little song that was sent to us by a composer by the name of Dean Farnell. Uh, It's his song called The Monster's Ball that he sent to us that he asked us to put in our episode. And so we're going to listen to that right now. So until next time, from Alex and I, Office Hours are Closed. Oh, oh, oh.